they shut the doors. All the windows get covered like as if they're closing and we're like, what's going on? Switch on the TV. The Germany-France game is being played and there's bombs going off right outside the stadium. And then it turns out the Bataclan attacks are happening. And we were there for like three, four hours in the dark. Like they had to put candles out and all that kind of thing. And they wouldn't let us out because no one had any idea what was going on. How did you get laid off? My manager, she's like, hey, how, you know, I heard what happened. But, you know, just FYI, we got to keep going Be on Zoom at this time or whatever the platform was. And I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. And then, yeah, I got laid off. And um, it was my dream job. It really was. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. As if being trapped, seeking cover from bombs wasn't scarring enough, just 24 hours later, Howe was laid off from his dream job. He found himself across the globe without a job or a clue what his next step would be. But somehow, he'd find opportunity in Vietnam. Today, Howe Tran is the CEO and co-founder of Vietcetera, one of the biggest multimedia digital networks in Vietnam that connects Vietnam with the world and the world with Vietnam. As a mentor, speaker, and innovative business leader, Howe has paved a new way through the world of business and culture. But it all started with a seemingly peaceful dinner in Paris. So you graduated from Brown, landed a managerial role at Hotel Tonight, which is like pretty sleek startup acquired by Airbnb, right? Yeah, that's right. I don't know if it was acquired at that point. I joined before, but right after I left, they actually got acquired. So I want you to tell me about the business trip you were in in Europe and the text you got from your manager. Yeah. So this was back in November 2015. Hotel Tonight had very generous perks. And one of them was that you can actually work at any Hotel Tonight office and they will reimburse your flights up to a certain amount and reimburse your hotel stays up to a certain amount. So I I was there at the company for almost two years at that point, I believe. And I decided to go to Europe. But I went to Europe because I also timed it with the Airbnb Open, ironically. That was the first ever uh, Airbnb Open. It was an event that the company did, not Hotel Tonight, Airbnb did to recognize its super hosts. Yeah, no, so those are events were hosts. huge. Yeah, it was in Paris. Um, and I was one of the super hosts at the time. I had a, uh, a place in San Francisco that I was renting out on Airbnb. And I rented out hundreds of times because I knew all the data about the hotels in San Francisco, what when it was selling, when it was not, and all the rates. So I arbitrage that data to then price my own Airbnb. So I would actually pick dates to travel and then let out my entire Airbnb during those high peak dates because I knew they would get booked with very high confidence and very high rates as well. Like in fact, uh, during Dreamforce every year in San Francisco, I think it's like a one week event. The rates just go skyrocketing because something like 50,000 guests, I want to say, or some absurd number come to descend upon San Francisco to go to Dreamforce and all the hotels are sold out because there's only a certain number of uh, four to five star hotels in San Francisco. I feel like that has like the ethos of Airbnb written all yeah, over exactly. it. I intentionally rented a two bedroom to a uh, flat in San Francisco to do specifically that because I would live in one room and run out the other. And I liked meeting people. Okay. So centering back onto Europe. So like you are uh, in Europe and you have the Airbnb maestro like within your soul. How do you receive like a message from your manager? 
uh, I went out to dinner with my two coworkers from the US who also took advantage of this perk. It was Friday night. We're at a steakhouse in Paris, 11 p.m. Life couldn't be better. And then they shut the doors. The windows got covered like as if they're closing. And we're like, what's going on? Switch on the TV. The Germany-France game is being played. And there's bombs going off in the stadium. Not in, but right outside the stadium. And then it turns out the Bataclan attacks are happening that night. We're like freaking out because my phone's dead at that point. I actually posted an Instagram with my coworkers just having a great night just like minutes before my phone died and minutes before this whole thing happened. And we were like one kilometer away from all this happening. Obviously, we couldn't do anything. We were stuck in the steakhouse. They, they closed it for safety reasons, right? And we were there for like three, four hours in the dark. Like they had to put candles out and all that kind of thing. And they wouldn't let us out because no one had any idea what was going on. And we're like, oh shit, you know, my phone's dead. You can't, probably getting a hundred messages because I just posted on Instagram too. So people know I was in Paris. And then... um yeah, eventually that us out. We went to the flat and it was like like way past midnight. And we we're just like, wow, this is really shitty. And then the next day I got laid off. How did you get laid off? My manager, like the next morning or the next evening, because it was morning in San Francisco. He's like, hey, how, you know, I heard what happened. But, you know, just be on Zoom at this time or whatever the platform was. And I was like, okay, that's kind of weird. And then, yeah, I got laid off. How did that feel? Pretty shitty 24 hours. And um, it was my dream job. It really was going out of school. Got to travel. Comp was all right. Like dynamic company startup. I think we were like 60, 70 people at the time that I joined. But yeah, I text my managers. I was like, you know, bummer that, you know, I couldn't see, say bye. But, you know, it's what it is. It's just business at the end of the day. And instead of flying back to San Francisco, I was like, well, I got two months severance. So, you know, what am I going to do? So I took I took a one-way ticket to Tokyo. <laughs> I was just like, all right. And I was there for like one or two weeks, I think, um, having a great time. They're on Thanksgiving at that point. And uh, yeah, that's how I got laid off. And I actually met, re-met my manager for the first time in summer of 2021, six years later. Oh my God. Believe it, believe yeah. it so it really and, took a while for you I to mean, circle back. That getting laid off actually, you know, obviously led to me coming to Vietnam. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like that kind of clears the slate. You can look at the world with open eyes. Why did you look to Southeast Asia again if your first time was kind of like not ideal? First time was with family. So you've got a per- certain lens on, of course, and, and you're obligated to stay with family. But the next couple of times, the second time being when I was on my severance pay, I was traveling by myself. So a lot more freedom, got to meet certain people, ask certain questions, do certain things. But why did you specifically choose Southeast Asia? It was affordable. Plus, I, I felt like it was one part of the world that I hadn't really truly explored because I'd lived in Europe at that point already. I'd spent time in India. I'd been in Japan and Korea a few times already. And China, for that matter. Um, and then also Africa had been twice and I've been to South America, too. So and Australia as well. So, yeah, Southeast Asia was the only place I was like, well, you know, it's going to be winter time, which is really pleasant in Southeast Asia. It's affordable. And um, yeah, being Asian Vietnamese also just gave me an extra you know, reason to come. Yeah. Yeah, like like uh, like maybe understanding your your heritage a little bit more. And so you're pretty dialed in into the Airbnb world. How do you meet Andrew Fraser? I obviously had a limited budget, couldn't stay at hotels uh, at the time. So I just surfed on Airbnb and all the cities I was going to. And in Ho Chi Minh City, I just happened to book his, like a private room in a house. I wanted to meet people. I didn't want my own place necessarily at the time. Plus, I didn't have money. So I think his, his place was like 20 bucks a night or something or really low. And I ended up booking it. And yeah, some Aussie guys like just taking over this like four bedroom house, 
like a tube house. It's one of those really tall houses, but skinny. And he's like, yeah, you know, welcome to Ho Chi Minh City, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what do you do here? He's like, yeah, I trade Bitcoins. I, I run, yeah, I, I'm also part of this like tech company that I help out with as well. He, he's, just, he's just kind of like a bit, not like full-time committed at the time. He's trying to figure out what he wanted to do next, basically. Um, and in, in the meantime, he was just like doing Airbnb to make a little side income, meet some people. Um, and we just got along really well. I was so lucky. Like, you, you know, life is, is just incredible sometimes and you never know who you meet anyways he uh just took me out and we i remember that first night his like cousins from australia were in town and he was like yeah let's go get some auk which is like a uh, shellfish snails and stuff like that so we went to this place i remember i, I landed that morning and that evening we went out we're talking like a thousand people sitting in this auk dao place on wing jai street in district one in Minh city and it's just like chock full you could see the energy it's like a monday night or something like that i'm like wow this city is pumping, right? And then right after that, we went to some bars and whatever. And yeah, I was quite grateful for that, obviously, introduction by him. And well, we spent like the that, next few uh, days Like a person out. like that opens a city up for you. But at that point, like, are you thinking this is somewhere I want to live? No, or no, it's no, like, no. this is a cool place? It was interesting. It was cool. And I was like, wow, okay. He's obviously, this particular person's done pretty well for himself. He's found a community. But for me, I was like, well, I accepted my new job already at that point. I was actually interviewing remotely and I got a job at Flexport. And DoorDash and a few other companies actually. And um, at the time, hiring was still pretty easy if you wanted to get a job. Like, yes, I got laid off from one company just because it was not managed at the time very well. But moving ahead, it was pretty clear to me I was going to go back. Went back to San Francisco. But I remember the last day, Andrew was like, hey, you know, you should think about working here. Ha ha. See you next time. Like as if like... As a joke. As, yeah. as a half joke. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, we, we stayed in touch, of course, because we just got along really well. But I, I went back and um, yeah, it just sucked. It was like January, February, winter time in San Francisco. Everyone's back to hustling. So am I. And I remember I, t- I, I joined Flexport and, you know, really cool company. Now you see what it's, it's doing. But I joined it actually seven years ago, something like that. Yeah. And, and um, I remember I interviewed with Ryan Peterson as well. That experience didn't go super well just because within the first 30 days, my mind was somewhere else already. In Vietnam? Yeah, kind of. And like, I remember starting my job and just being like, mm, I don't know, nothing's really exciting, inspiring from what I'm doing right now. It's not a reflection of the company necessarily, but it's just like, I didn't want to be there. I knew very quickly too, the team's uh, like work scope didn't really match with what I wanted to do. Uh, it's like one of those things that startups always suffer from, right? They want to hire, but then they don't get the JD right or something like that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And within 30, the first 30 days, I already already surfing the internet about jobs in Vietnam, like passively. So how did you come across the Wall Street Journal 500 startups article? I, just, I don't even remember but exactly, but just searching on Google like news probably. I, I remember seeing it and being like, why would anyone want to do that in Vietnam? <laughs> like, especially if you're like an American company, you should deploy, be deploying in Silicon Valley, not in a random place in the world for whatever reason. So you literally thought I was like, oh, this is dumb. Yeah, I thought it was not feasible. Like this is not a business like you can feasibly run and be successful. But anyways, I was curious. I, I was I was curious and like, wow, OK, you know, I want to know more. Like who wouldn't? And then, so I decided to go online and just find the contact. And I ended up searching like all types of variations of his email address. The, so this is Bin Tran. Yeah, that's right. So I was like searching bin at uh, bt at 
trend ads like, <laughs> like every like, email format. You know, like like every good salesperson would oh, do. Yeah, you know, no, you no, find I'm very the, familiar. You find the <laughs> domain of the company and then you just try to send an email, a cold email. Yeah, but, there's like seven email formats yeah, like first so name, many. first letter, first name, last name, last right. name, first name, first name, dot last name. Yeah. Every variation possible. And I uh, it just bumped into it, finally went one through and he actually responded and he was like, Yeah, let's get coffee. What so, did you say to get him a response? You know, sales, you gotta be fast. You gotta know who you're emailing. Like when I get these like uh, let's say interns or salespeople who want to sell me something or join the company and they send me this like essays. I'm like, damn, you know, they don't, time for that. they don't, it's not even that. It's just like, they don't understand who they're talking to. Like, I mean, all people in life are busy. Okay. But especially like as a CEO, being busy is not a good excuse. That is a fact, but the excuse the lowest is priority. That, yeah. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, I just want to like solve problems all day. And if you're creating one for me by creating an essay that I don't want to read, you're not going to get it read, you know, like, and I'm just going to delete it or just not read it. Like I try to respond to all though. Like I usually just have like a copy and paste thing. I just send it. I'm like, Hey, you know, now's not a good time. Sorry. Like it's just really fast. At least I respond. Well, I appreciate right? you not yeah. sending that to our long email. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. Anyways, I, I usually just archive right away, but to him, the, the, I still have an email actually. The title's like, Oh, Vietnamese American, 23 years old, worked at this company wants to learn more. Like super short. The email itself is like two sentences. It's like, hey, I read this article. I, I copy and pasted the URL link. Uh, I was like, really cool. I want to work for one of your portfolio companies. I live in San Francisco too. Can we meet? But at the time, they were only hiring interns, right? They weren't even hiring. They just announced the fund. They did PR so that they can get LPs to know about it. Um, so they hadn't even closed the first close yet. So there was no open <laughs> positions. Yeah, there are no time. open positions. Yeah. They hadn't even opera- operationalized. It's like opening a bank account, but yeah. there's no money in the bank account. So I, how did the coffee go? Really well. We, he actually responded. Uh, we agreed to meet the next few days. I can pull up the name. I remember the place in San Francisco, though. It looks like a factory. Yeah. And he had like probably a quick response where it's like this coffee shop, 3 PM. Yeah. Something like that. And I was like, Oh my God, I gotta like take the day off. You know? Like, um, so I, luckily it was in San Francisco though. So I, I remember going and, uh, you know, this guy is pretty successful. He like sold a company for a couple hundred million dollars, you know, but one thing I realized too, is that successful people are not actually that busy. Like if they want to meet with you, they will make time. Yeah. If they're really successful, they've delegated everything. Yeah. Well, that too. So like, I mean, young people, they have this perception that like, uh, oh, you know, like I got to pray to the gods to meet these people. It's not like that. Actually, if you just help solve even the smallest problem for them, they will probably respond. (laughs) Like, but if you don't solve anything for them, then they will not respond. So anyways, I I met with them and because he was hiring, he obviously managing his portfolio. It's like, okay smart kid, you know, speaks Vietnamese, works at Palantir. Okay. He must have some head on him. Right. So I I got to meet him and within 20 minutes, I realized like, Hey, I actually want to work for this guy, not these portfolio companies. So I just straight up asked him, can I work for you instead? And he he tells me how, um, you know, that's not a good idea. We're not, we're also not ready right now. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, we can't afford you. Cause how much were you making at that point? six, 7,000 plus bonuses, commissions or something like that. So maybe 10 K a month at that point. So like, like over six figures at that point. Uh, yeah. 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 For sure. Um, and which in San Francisco, um, I mean like it's San Francisco, it's like, it's like it's okay. good. entry yeah. level, you're yeah. getting your career started. You can't ask for more and anywhere else in the country. That's like a lot of money. Too. Exactly. Um, and he was like, yeah, you're doing well, keep going. You got great companies on your resume. You're probably making some change. And I was like, no, you know, I want to, I'm talking to you right now. I'm like, let me know what, what you can do. 300 US dollars a month. 300 US dollars a month. That, that's and the, for an that's the pay role. rate for an intern. 
or even a junior is probably like maybe double that for like investment associate. Yeah. You, you know, we as Westerners were, we take for granted like what we have in places like the US. In Vietnam, young people are really scrappy for opportunities. They're very hungry. Um, and I see that at my company and at other places around. But when you started at that, like when you saw that number, what did you initially think? Did you, did you either like, I got savings, who cares? Or was it, was there any shock to that number or no? Well, one, I was not surprised just because I'd done research online already about expectations. So it's not like, oh my God, but I was in shock about my relative standing as already a full-time employee in Sil- Silicon Valley. I just went to graduate from Brown and I'm like now reverting back in time to be an intern, essentially unpaid. I'm actually paying to be an intern. You're making those like post-graduation yeah. statistics go way down. Right, exactly. <laughs> like just plummeted, right? Uh, brought down that average massively. And uh, I remember, and then I just asked him, hey, could you pay for my flight at least? And he was like, I'll pay for half. And then uh, he also offered to host me at his partner's house, like as a transition for two weeks. So in their extra spare bedroom. So I was like, okay. I remember arriving and you know, I meet the guy, the, the other partner. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. And then I look out the window. I'm fast forwarding like a month later. And like, you know, the city's under construction. There's like foundations being laid out for towers. Like, you know, you can see the whole rivers and there's nothing today. It's like, boom, you know, everything is like built out. Vietnam is like almost like a startup in itself. Yeah. So as, as you know, with any startup, though, growth comes as a double-edged sword. I say that in a very reflective way because, yes, there's immense growth. And as any entrepreneur, that's super exciting. But growth also implies that the, the base is not there yet. That's why there's growth. Right. Because if it was that easy, everyone would be here. Yes, there's opportunity, there's gaps in the markets to fill and that kind of thing. But let's talk about talent. A lot of young people, but there's not enough managers, there's not enough leaders, there's not enough specialists. You know, just offline, you're talking about, you know, all this audio stuff, using these tools to do this and that. Like the average producer in Vietnam doesn't think like that. I'm sorry, but they just don't, they don't. Some of them don't even speak English. Uh, they can read uh, and write, but they can't speak very well or in terms of confidence. It's an opportunity, but also a challenge. Opportunity in the sense like it's the only country in the world that speaks this language that 100 million people happen to speak. So in terms of market dominance and just like creating something special and getting a response very quickly, it's hyper localized. There's only like essentially two cities in this entire world, Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City, that are like really urbanized and have these kind of consumers and readers. So it's easy in a way to grow, but it's also hard because the the ability to hire exceptional talent or the ability to have certain levels of education, you're literally building those blocks yourself. Going back to looking out of the window, right? So you're looking at like, like, like everything under construction, you're working at this company. How are you feeling after like, you know, a month or two? I I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I mean, I I knew that wow, every day is an adventure. But you know, I looked at my bank account. I'm I'm bringing in three hundred dollars a month, and I'm spending like seven hundred or something. But yeah, I mean, at the time, I'll, I will admit, I'm not like an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur, like I'm a very good operator. And Vietcetera just kind of started by accident. Yeah. So how did you meet? Because there was three co-founders yes. of Vietcetera yeah. initially without you there. Um, how did you meet them? So. Uh, so I moved there in May and I think I started like, you know, poking around Vietnam, like around February in terms of thinking about moving there. And then it it wasn't official until April. So back in April, before I moved out, I got connected with another VC who was a Vietnamese American already lived in Asia and and Vietnam for a long time too. We hop on a call. It was introduced by Bin, my manager. 
And he, I was telling him like, I'm super excited to come out. And he's like, how don't come to Vietnam. I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, yeah, you know, I just left. I just moved to Singapore. I think at your age, you need to be like learning more in the US, like getting a couple more experience under your belt. Now he was quite discouraging, but he is a bit of a pessimist. So, and he knows that. So I'm okay with saying that online. And then he tells me like, oh, you know, while you're there, you have some experience writing. I was a top writer on Quora at the time. And um, I remember him mentioning that he had this website called Vietcetera. And my first thinking was like, wow, that's a complicated name to say, but it's cool once you get it. <laughs> you know. Um, and I was like, okay, so why are you bring it up? He's like, yeah, you know, there's three of us that started it, me this, and two other dudes that live here in Vietnam. But you know, there's no content uh, because I was supposed to be the writer, this particular guy, but he just moved to Singapore, full-time job. And then the other two, one ran a very successful creative agency. And the other guy could not write. He's like um, a designer. He just doesn't know how to write properly. So they're like, yeah, we're looking for a writer. Do you want to join? Uh, we'll pay you, I think it was two, $300 a month. And we'll give you 15% equity. I was like, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 15% equity? Well, I mean, it was just a blog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. I was like, but okay, still, whatever, fine. Yeah, like, I know. It was crazy, like, right? That's like a founding well, see, that, opportunity. That tells you a lot about the talent market here in Vietnam. Because like this guy literally never even met me. And he already offered 15% <laughs> equity on the Zoom call. You know, like, <laughs> Because <laughs> you, 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 you can spot out talent very easily in Vietnam. Like, I think that's why when I arrived as a 23 year old, people are like, wow, this guy's got like bounds of energy and he's like semi well educated and like can like, you know, talk. So, like, give him some stuff to like go after, right? So, when did you actually meet them? Like, did, was it like a formal offer given? Yeah. So, April, he like he teased it basically. Yeah. It's then like 15%. Like, like, yeah. Something like that. I was like, okay, you know, I'll l- let me take a look when I actually get there. So, May, I actually fly into Singapore first, where this one particular guy had moved to. And I stayed at his house for a couple of days before formally moving to Vietnam. That's when we got to know each other. I stayed at his house, blah, 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 like had a great time. Then I flew out to Ho Chi Minh City, where in the first two weeks that I arrived, I met the other two. And where is Guy in the mix? He, he was in Vietnam. Me and Guy were the ones that truly worked together because the other two were running their own things or weren't even in Vietnam. And so he was the designer? He was a designer, yeah, a web designer. So he um he also didn't have a full-time job. He had just like exited one of his other companies. So he's just kind of like coasting a little bit while waiting to get this going. So the two of us end up like writing articles and taking photos and uploading it on a blog, on a WordPress about the entrepreneurs we were meeting, kind of like this, but in text form uh and photography form. Can you tell me about uh, Maru Chocolate? Because now it's huge, but like back then, like you, they were they were like kind of coming up. Sure, that that was actually the first article that I wrote on Vietcetera. At the time that I wrote my first article, there was like five on the website. There's only five. Yeah, only five. Are they were terrible too? Not <laughs> yeah. even that interesting. Written by the other guys. So yeah, that was my first article. And yeah, Maru, like we in a way we kind of like grew up with them. Um, and there's this like cohort of businesses that started, let's say, give or take 10 years ago that were all about elevating Vietnam's brand. That doesn't mean expensive. It just means like they're doing something that helps brand the country rather than commoditizing it. Because Vietnam, as like with most manufacturing countries, they usually just do OEM white label and they just go ship it abroad. But there's a, a generation of brands that are like truly like Vietnamese branded and selling to Vietnamese or selling to abroad. Because like there's another company that competes with Maru that don't actually have their own brand. They just white label everything. They sell it to five star hotels, that kind of thing. And you know, there's there's nothing wrong to both models. I mean, they both have their other different challenges. But it tells you a lot about the evolution of the country. Because 
it's still a very attractive manufacturing base for OEM, white label, anything. And you can find tons of suppliers for just about anything. Um, but there's a generation from give or take 10 years ago that started as creating brands that are proudly Vietnamese and then selling them as Vietnamese brands. So how did that interview go with Maru? Like, like how are you feeling in that? Because this is, you'd been writing on, on Quora, but like, how are you feeling about writing in Vietnam about these Vietnamese companies? Yeah, I mean, you know, pretty young at the time, I'd read a bunch of stories about them online and was like, wow, you know, I get to meet these people. That's awesome. And, and I think that's why I still do this job today because I get to meet people like that. It's like an, a mini MBA every time that you get to just sit down, listen to someone share some stories and, you know, you, they, you can share some stories in return as well. And at the time, I was a bit shell-shocked, actually, because I had read about these guys and done a lot of research and was like, wow, these are, this is incredible. You know, I wish I can build a business like this one day, too. And you're learning how to do it from those people. And so initially, um, Vietcetera was more business-focused, right? So we were more um, like new Vietnam-focused. And it, it happened to be very angled towards business and entrepreneurship because that's what I was interested in. I was the only writer. The time, <laughs> okay. so, so how do you start um, expanding the team? Because like, it's, I, I imagine it's... You were English focused initially. How do you think about expanding? My co-founder at the time, he had been in Vietnam much longer. He was very um, against doing Vietnamese language because he believed that the market for Vietnamese language was too competitive and we needed to do something different. So be the, like, the largest English essentially in Vietnam. But after a year or two of doing that, we realized a lot of our readers were actually Vietnamese people who wanted to who could read both languages, but would choose Vietnamese if given it. But how are you growing? Like, I'm, I'm curious, like the first steps to go from two people in a room to a hundred people, like what are the first decisions, first hires? Like, how do you start expanding? We hired a lot of interns. A lot of young people reached out to us kind of offering their skills, kind of like one of them was an animator, actually a video animator. And she was super talented, uh, just studying the U.S., came back home to Ho Chi Minh City and just emailed us. It's like, hey, I just got back home. I love the stuff you're doing. Um, can I animate some of them into like motion graphics and all that too? So I responded within 15 minutes. I remember I was in a coffee shop and just reading the email that we got. I was like, yeah, let's let's uh, bring her in. So she comes in the next day, super nervous, like you know, like yeah. 22 to meet well, the CEO. I, was, I, wasn't, yeah. I wasn't that much older than her, but like I remember she's like, oh my god, like here's the two guys that started etc. Because we were quite popular in each way at that time. Uh, even though we publish almost no content. Um, how did it become popular? Like, how did it go? It from- just, it's crazy, right? You know, I look back and, you know, it goes, goes back to what I was saying before. There's a lot of things that haven't been done here yet. Like, we take these things for granted in the US where English is the main language. Billions of people speak it. We've been, as a country, very wealthy. So there's tons of niche content that could live and exist because of that. But in Vietnam, it's not. And so as soon as there was even something, even though you weren't publishing a ton... It developed a following. Yes, the response was huge. To the point where you're getting people, like young people, to like just randomly apply because of how like interesting cool your brand is. Yes. Wow, that's amazing. And we even did uh, international recruiting because like the Vietnamese overseas started following us too because of English. Like, oh, this is a portal for Vietnamese identity. So how did, the, how did you start to think about expanding the team? So you have like a couple people come in just that are readers, but like... What infrastructure are you putting? No infrastructure. No infrastructure. You're just well, hiring willy yeah, Well, just like, you know, like getting people that are eager and have a certain skill set. I remember that one of the first other interns we hired, so I was scrolling on LinkedIn and she, she had posted something that a friend of mine liked or a connection of mine had liked. So, you know, pops on the LinkedIn. And I remember reading it. And it's like a report about fashion trends in Vietnam for young people. 
I, I just remember clicking and be like, oh, you know, that's kind of interesting. She put this together, you know, okay. She did it as like a university thesis thing. So I just reached out to her on, on LinkedIn. And I was like, hey, you know, interesting report. Would you want to work for us? And she's like, yeah. So we, we meet up at this coffee shop in District 1. I remember she's already arrived. And she's like explaining how right now she's about to graduate. And she works at a like a souvenir shop, a very popular one, uh, mostly for tourists in Vietnam. You know, she's a retail associate there. And I'm like, hey, you know, we're kind of hiring for an intern. I just reached out to you spontaneously, but I think you'd be wonderful. But we can't really pay you right now. We don't make any money. And she's like, well, I make $10,500,000 a month at Ginkgo, the other place. And I'm like, you know, stay there. <laughs> I can't offer you anything. And then a week goes by and she reaches out. She's like, hey, how, you know, I thought about it. You know, this is a really unique opportunity to work with the founders. And I was like, wow, cool. So she starts. So there's only like a handful of people. Yeah, there four or five point. people at that point. And so she starts and she's writing, doing some basic project management stuff. And I'm just sitting there like, wow, people have literally left their paying jobs. Just join us for free. Like w- without even contracts or signatures or anything. We're just like, yeah, let's go. Well, she's about to graduate at that point. So I think like six months before she graduates or something. And she like stops going to class. She loves her job so much. She just keeps coming to the office. I'm like, don't you have class to go to? He's like, yeah, but don't worry. I'm, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I mean, whatever. And then after one or two months, we start paying her. You know, we start making money a bit more. So how did you start making money initially? Just like random brand deals, do people doing advertorials. Um, our first ever client was a specialty coffee shop and they agreed, I think it was like 5 million. It's about 200 US dollars to do an advertorial and we take photos and write about the pretty shop. pretty good for a first brand deal. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I remember getting it and be like, oh, cool. Yeah. So, you know, me, me and the co-founder go and we literally show up, do, do the job. And we're like, uh, okay, cool. You know, 30 day payment terms net. And they're like, oh, you can actually pick up at the ca- uh, register right now. I'm like, uh, dope. <laughs> like, we haven't even published it yet. <laughs> you want to pay us already. So we go down and we're given an envelope. I open it and it's a 5 million dong uh, voucher for credit oh. at the coffee shop. And I'm like, so pissed. I was like, I immediately call the guy. I'm like, hey, you know, I think there's a misunderstanding. He's like, no, no, no. I think, you know, these, this is really valuable. You guys will really enjoy it. I'm like, so after like arguing with him on the phone for like five minutes, he, he's finally like, hey, fine, fine, fine. So they pay us the cash and we get out of there. Okay. So you get your first brand deal. You have your first interns. Can you um, take me to 2018 when you're at a hundred people? What does that look like? At that point, we realized since most of our readers are Vietnamese anyways, who could read both languages by giving them Vietnamese, we're just going to grow a larger audience, but be more relevant to them. So it's like, it's a no brainer. You have to respond to what like that's relevant to them. And at this point, you're just, you're completely still just the website and articles. Yeah. We did a couple videos here and there, but not any with no consistency. So we were just opportunistic when it came to video creation. But we, at that point we had a couple staff members and we're beginning to create IP through videos, but without enough. And so what was the decision? Because like, I mean, strategically, it's like, okay, let's focus on Vietnamese language. But with that decision, I imagine comes like the cost of there's probably people that you may not need anymore because you need to focus on Vietnamese language. Yes, that was a hard turning point at the company. Uh, We had two foreigners who wrote native English, of course. And I remember telling them the day that we made this decision, hey, you know, English is going to be secondary. We're essentially cutting off investment and including your role. But because we know it's important to our our identity, uh, we want to keep English. But just FYI, we're not hiring anymore. And you can keep your current salaries as well, but we may phase them over to like a freelance. People got pissed, you know, people got pissed and like, but you know, the business has a direction to make. I felt bad, but at the same time, you have to stand your ground and, you know, play with, you know, you got to be empathetic. And 
I, I do know I'm a little bit too logical, not empathetic enough, but at the same time, like this is a business decision and we've made a solution. Because the solution is not just keep paying them just because we like <laughs> yeah. them, right? It's just like, we got to like make a decision here. And this is also, I think something that every founder has to go through. Like, you know, your, your first like fires, your first downsizings, like your, your first strategic change. Like that's, I, I think something every founder goes through. And I think like, it seems like you handled it pretty well. And you also, you made the right decision. I think so. I Well, right decision. Yes. And I think in terms of handling it, I could have in retrospect handled it better, but you learn as you go. I mean, that was like five years ago and we've made a lot more decisions since then, of course, that have been difficult, but that was one of the particular turning points of the company. As soon as we made that change, the company skyrocketed too. I can't, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I just remember like uh, the user research as soon as we eliminated the toggle and the, the response on the traffic changed immediately, like overnight, every new user that would like discover etc. And they would go to the .com and land on Vietnamese, like everything from their uh, on page time to like all these things were like way skyrocketing. So why did it feel like now was the time to raise? And also what was your vision to who you were pitching to of what this would become? So it felt like the right time because we made that change. But second, I worked in VC and I knew that like where Vietnam was going, a lot of people want to know more and invest in this country, but there's very little deal flow. You never know. So in response to the vision, what we sold was like, we are this platform that represents where Vietnam is going. We are this bridge that connects the world to Vietnam in both ways, ideas, products, experiences, content, you know, people. And people love that too, because the angel investors who are almost all in Vietnam knew that as well. So how did you think about that money in terms of runway, in terms of what you need to invest in? I will admit I'm very irresponsible with money. I'm very good at generating revenue as an individual. Like I can make sales happen and make deals happen. Um, spending, I'm very ill-disciplined. I've definitely realized that. I can read balance sheets and all that though. So it's kind of unsustainable because I'm like, okay, just spend then just make more money. But that's not necessarily the objective here, right? It's to be disciplined on gross margins, among other things. And we have a CFO now joins two years ago. And she is so good. Oh my God. Like she's both my best friend and worst enemy. <laughs> but I say that in a good way because you kind of need that balance. I want to actually talk about the CFO in a little bit. What do you think is like the best way you spent money up until 2020? So we'll like lead up until 2020 and like the worst ways. Best ways, um, because we had working capital available, we were able to make hires quickly and not really think twice. Um, and some of those people have been uh, exceptional. And I, I'm not saying like they were super well compensated, like made thousands and thousands of dollars. It's just because even at their market salaries, we were able to make those decisions quickly. So that's what the working capital allowed us to do. And then the bad things was, it's also the same answer. Like we've made some really bad hires. What do you think is uh, the best way that you've seen to like, I imagine you've gotten better at hiring over time. So like if you were to boil that down into like a couple rules that you've created for yourself, like what would those be? So about two years ago, I stopped hiring people personally as CEO. Like I wouldn't even interview people. I only people relevant to my immediate teams as a manager. And that's when I noticed like our just culture changing. And I recently took back hiring. I had to interview every single person at the last stage. Like even if it's just five, just say hello and see what their yeah, response because, like, is. Because the CEO is like also the mascot of the company, you know? Yeah. And I think I left the ball, put my eye off the ball on that, delegated it to, you know, other people. I think in a, in a country like Vietnam or Asia in general, there's basic things like, I'm not afraid to share these things either. It's like, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And when you mention like, oh, do you, we use all these tools and do this for, you know, we know where to access education. And when I mentioned that people in Vietnam, because it's not in Vietnamese, don't access it. Well, you know, if you have enough curiosity and you speak 
English already, like you've learned English, chances are you have the ability to access these things. It's all for free. And if you're not curious enough to discover these things, even though you speak that language basically perfectly and it's all free and you work in the industry, you're kind of living it under a rock. And so we test people. Like I put a new question um, application just last week, rate from one through 10 your comfort level of using AI tools. And anyone that's under a five, we just don't interview them. Because like moving forward, people need to realize that AI is coming, whether you like it or not. You know, people first think, oh my God, all of upon my job's gone. No, just like do your job better. Yeah, do your job better. Like, yeah, it's like, like the, the bullshit is taken away. And now it's like, uh, I think what it allows is humans to be more creative. And I, I think uh, focus on creativity, not the labor. But in Vietnam and Asia in general, people have been so labor focused because it's commodity based and people have lower salaries. So we're setting the groundwork for people to value their creativity more than their time because time has always been what Asian people in developing countries value. I mean, that's why China was so successful because it was outsourcing uh, to the end of the world, right? For me, but now China's realized, like, oh, we've got to upskill our workers because automation's coming. People are demanding higher services, but also all those lower-paying, uh, commoditized jobs—they're moving to Southeast Asia, they're moving to Nepal, to Bangladesh, to India, or wherever they are going. So, like, our people who demand more now need higher advanced jobs and we don't have enough. So around 2020, we hired a new head of content who's now on our board. She's still with us, of course. She's awesome. She has a lot of background in, in TV and video and radio. And she was the one that really ramped that up. Because before we had capabilities, we can hire people, but without enough direction and leadership, you can't. You just can't make it happen. It's tough. I My expertise was like business and recruiting. I'm not a like content content guy. Like, yeah, I can get on a mic and just start talking, but I'm not like a creative content person person. And then my co-founder, he was a web designer. He's not a content. So that was a turning point as well. Hiring like experts for verticals like finance, content. We're not just a bunch of like ragtag people like publishing content anymore. What was like the first content that you put on the YouTube channel? I know Vietnam Innovators was the first podcast that you had and it was the English version. That's our flagship show now. It gets like a couple million downloads a month, if not more, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And that was in October 2021. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Vietnam Innovators was, I think, September 2020 or maybe October. And then Have a Sip was like one or two months after that. But those two kicked off the whole pod and uh, simulcast in this case um, format. We own podcasts. There were no content creators native to podcasting when we launched. And I think today, yeah. In Vietnam. Uh, nobody was doing podcasts. Now there's like 1,500 podcasts, apparently. We're still the market leader. Yeah. So we dominate. But, you know, that percentage is going down, I think. But the volume is still increasing. Yeah. That's I mean, because uh, everyone is is doing it more. How do you think you were so successful with Have a Sip? What do you attribute to that success? Our chief content officer, who is both a full-time employee at the company, like has leadership responsibilities, but is also herself a content creator. I think what we found there was, well, she's just really good at what she does. That's number one. But number two is there's a lot of, there's actually a lot of creators out there or potential creators, like even myself, who I don't want to run a YouTube channel, like a How Tran official YouTube channel. I just don't want to do that. Like CPMs are low. I don't have a sales team under me. Like I'm thinking if I were just working alone and it's just not what I want to do. I want to be a running, building my career in business, right? Among other things. So we have started developing IP where we'll work with creators who maybe they have their own YouTube channel already. I don't want anything to do with it. Keep doing it. <laughs> but you're going to come to our studio 
once a week or once every month, whatever. And you're going to talk about something you're passionate about that you wouldn't publish on your own channel. Like last night, I just met the national team coach of Cambodia's football team, soccer team, friend of a friend. And we were talking for like two hours over dinner about all things like football. Like it was so much fun. Like he was talking about, he's one of the youngest national team football coaches in the entire world. He's 35, 36. He's working in Cambodia. He's an Argentinian guy, or, uh, is coaching these Cambodian young players and talking about community and like building a team. I'm like, they're talking about like the business side of sport management because I'm really fascinated by that. And we we're like, talk for two hours. It was so much fun, right? And like, I'm thinking, I would not post on my own per Instagram every day about like sports stuff because that's just not who I am. But I'm very passionate about it. I think even outside of Asia in English, people would love to know like what's sport like in Asia or like around the world from a Westerner's point of view too. And like from sport management to the business side. And so going back to have a sip, like how do you think that was so successful? So going back to the whole creator thing, kind of taking the, the, the pains out of running a podcast, everything from distribution to selling, being sustainable. Like you mentioned the CPMs, you were like shocked at how low they were. And that's what's prohibiting content creators from making that a real career for themselves. But as a network, you can. Yeah, because we have, we have the pull with advertisers. We're constantly talking to them. So we have a team doing that. When did it start taking off? I, I mean, like almost immediately, actually. Because also, our, even Vietnam innovators did. Um, because it just, there was a gap. No one was doing that kind of content. There's a lot of competition for like vlogs. And like, I think emerging market trends for mass market are all about like, beauty and fashion and all this like other more like superficial materialistic stuff that consumer demands are, are demanding. But when it comes to things like mental health, like sex or like personal finance, those are very taboo things, but they're super high CPMs too, because like the banks want to advertise to personal finance, not beauty stuff, right? Those niche audiences. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about the decision to release all of your content on your YouTube channel. Um, on one YouTube channel, but have separate um, podcasts for yeah for each of the shows. Your your views will massively vary between shows because it's like someone who's interested in have a sip may not be interested in Vietnam innovators, may not be interested in Quima. That's happening right now uh, to us. So we don't, I don't, we don't feel an urge, a need to split yet, because a lot of the hosts of those like anchor shows are very relatable to Viet Cetera. Like they're, they're, the identity is very ingrained. Like, um, like I saw a comment on have a sip the other day, or maybe it was my show. It's like, Oh, these three hosts like represent the face of Viet Cetera. So it's kind of like, we, we feel it's not data driven as much that we need to keep it under one channel. But I think in the future, and we've been doing it already, like TikTok, we've been splitting it up. Because uh, TikTok, I, based on the algorithm, it's a bit more discovery focused, and it's much easier to spearhead yeah. new shows like YouTube. It takes a couple months to a long time, yeah. But TikTok can blow up in one month, um, and that's what's happening. So YouTube, we're not quite ready for that yet. I feel like, and also the CPMs are so low, anyways. The the goal, right, is to drive from low CPM to high CPM platforms are like, like low mon like monetization to high monetization. And so like maybe you would get more distribution from having a specific channel. Yeah. We we're doing a big revamp of the company uh, strategy for that, for the items like that right now. So it's going to be on the docket to really analyze. And, and the data tells you that too, because my show on YouTube, at least it 10 K 15 K pretty regularly, no problem. Um, 
but have a sip is like half a million, one million. So that that discrepancy is pretty large. Uh, so so yes, short short answer is yes. We we have a separate Vietnam Innovators channel. Like it's like, it has like five six k subscribers on YouTube, and we have a separate TikTok that has like twenty, I think. Um, so what if we really double down on it to the level of like a Viet success, for example? Could it become a, another Viet success in a way, right? I, I, in terms of virality and just user base. So I'm curious about how you got the directs coima. I'm saying that wrong. Coima. So it means take it off in English. So the idea is like like in sex, but it's more like taking off taboos because it's about identity, relationships, and taboos as well. Okay, how did that work? So we actually released articles first. We use our .com as kind of like a test bed. Like its articles are really fast. They're really affordable compared to videos and podcasts. So we just released content under IP that we would create to test. And it respo- the response was huge. So we ended up taking that data and being like, hey, we, we went to Reckon Me Johnson that owns Direx. And we were like, hey, you got to sponsor a, a, a podcast version of this IP. They're like, okay. So they dropped 50K for a season to like sponsor it. So we took that capital to like make it happen. And then three, four years running, still, still sponsored. So it's like recurring revenue. Um, and the, the hosts are quite flexible in what they can do. Uh, Durex doesn't really monitor them. They just know that, you know, we have a working trust relationship, right? So, um, What do you feel are the next big moves that you're most excited about for the company? I think expanding that IP beyond content and then putting ads on it. I think that's where things are moving in the West too, where creators have IP and they like Mr. Beast does burgers now, right? Or I think he's eliminated that chocolate, sorry, feastables. Um, we are thinking in similar ways, but relevant to Vietnam, of course. And each show will soon have its own PL. It, it does already, but thinking about the brand management side of things. We used to have a we have an advisor and she was telling me how how brands like Unilever or Nestle launch these mass market brands. They do a lot of user research that and they create a product that responds to it. They think about marketing position. Is it upper? Is it lower? Is it in the middle? urban or the provinces, what price point, who are they targeting? And then once it's released to market, you have people monitoring sales like on a daily basis. And where do we want, we already, where do we want to take this podcast to? Because it's not just another episode. And in the past, we were just like, okay, episode by episode. And I think the content is just the foundation. If you think about the IP and where it can go beyond content and advertising, it's quite exciting. Because at least in our world, we're thinking that the Vietnam Innovators podcast is only 20% of revenue in the future. So where's the other 80% you might be asking? Well, it's coming soon. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Ashley Jimenez with support from Jessica Morales, Miley Lipton, Siyu Pan, Kenny Ray, Josie Yo, Matt Fernandez, and Merritt Hill. Our outreach and research team lead is Desiree Nunez with support from Marissa Granados, Monica Lee, Sarah Tiersma, and Yao Luo. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. Thank you.